Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear Douglas Wilson's talk, Justification by Faith Alone, from our audio collection titled, The Gospel of Our Lord Jesus Christ. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that we have a brand new addition to the Christian Heritage series this month, Charles Spurgeon's Lectures to My Students. Get your copy today at canonpress.com. Amen. Well, we're continuing our series on the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and finishing that series, and we're going to be talking about how the salvation that God has wrought, how the salvation that he has accomplished through Christ on the cross is appropriated by us, how it comes to be our salvation as opposed to the salvation of someone who is outside of Christ. In other words, what do we do? How do we respond to all this? When the gospel is preached, when the message is proclaimed, what is our responsibility? How should we we respond? If salvation is all of God, do we respond? And if we respond, how are we to understand that? Now, of course, from our vantage point and, and from what Scripture records, we are to respond to these glorious truths in a very simple way. We are to repent of our sins and we're to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We repent, turning away from our sins, and we believe in Christ. Now this is very simple in Scripture. It is very simple on paper, but the sinful heart of man makes this doctrine slippery. This is something that is hard for us to get a hold of, not because it is uh, complex, it is not a theological calculus, it is not something that is beyond us and it requires a great education in order to understand it, What it requires is a simple and humble submission to what God reveals in his word. It is simple, and because we are complex in our sin, because we have in a complex way sought out many devices, because we have sought to make some sort of salvation which is grace and works together, we have made a very simple subject very complicated. And I hope that we see, if God is kind to us and his spirit mediates this to us, I hope that we can see first the simplicity of it, and secondly, the depth of it. Before we consider how we are to understand salvation through faith alone, justification through faith alone, I want to remind you of what we've covered thus far. First, remember that we are united with Adam in his disobedience. Everything that Adam did, up to and including his rebellion against God uh, at the tree that was prohibited, that disobedience and all his activities is something that we are included in. We are represented by Adam, and because he is our corporate head, our public head, our covenantal head, because he disobeyed, we all disobeyed in him. And there is no individual way out. We were plunged into sin corporately. The only way we can be brought out of sin is through a corporate Savior. We have to be saved by a second Adam. We cannot choose or will or run our way out of the dilemma we are in. And this is because of our deep covenant with Adam. Without a deep covenant with Christ, without Christ as our covenant head, there is no salvation. So we are united with Adam in his rebellion, and we are united with him in every respect. We can't get our way out individually. Not only are we united with Adam in this way, But God, as a holy God, cannot look on sin, cannot fellowship with sin, cannot countenance sin in any way. And so consequently, the wrath of God rests upon Adam and all his descendants. 
So it's not uh, a simple matter of saying, yes, we are sinful, but, uh, then, but then go on to interpret that sin as simply a human failing. Of course, nobody's perfect and we all sin a little bit. We have to recognize that our sin and Adam's sin and our sin in Adam is deeply offensive to God. We have to recognize that he is angered by it and that we all, by nature, are objects of wrath because of our position in Adam. The constitution of someone who comes to become a Christian is not different at birth than the constitution or the makeup of someone who never becomes a Christian. We are all, by nature, the same. And God takes those whom he saves out from the common lump of humanity, and this common lump is a lump, that, uh, lump of clay is a lump that is under the wrath of God. So we need a Savior. It is not simply... Uh, Sufficient, it is not sufficient to say, well, we're sinful, but we don't, sin is not that serious, and so we don't need uh, much help. We are in deep trouble because of our connection to Adam. God is angry with us, and we need some Savior who will satisfy that anger that God has toward us. This salvation is found in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. First, we, we have to realize that it is essential that we acknowledge who Jesus is. It's not just a question of affirming what he did. We must acknowledge who he is. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. When, uh, when Mary conceived and brought, um, brought forth a, a son, this son was God present in our midst. This uh, son of Mary was the one who created Mary. He was the one who spoke her into existence along with the rest of creation. And then God in his kindness brought, God, uh, brought the second person of the Trinity down to live among us and to tabernacle for a while among us. And the identification of, of this Christ, this Jesus of Nazareth, with God, uh, God himself is absolutely essential to our salvation. We must affirm who Jesus is and not just what he did. And then we go on to acknowledge what he did. He died on the cross for our sins, and in his death on the cross, our forgiveness was secured, and in his resurrection from the dead, our justification was secured. He purchased and bought and obtained these things 2,000 years ago on the cross. Now, when we say that he, he secured our forgiveness and he secured our justification, this is only possible because God, in his grace, has united us with Christ. We are united with Adam in his disobedience, and we are united with Christ in his obedience. That is, when he died on the cross, he was obedient. When he was buried, he was obedient. When he was raised from the dead, he was obedient. In all his obedience, from the beginning of his life to the resurrection of Christ and, and, and beyond, in, into his ascension to the right hand of God the Father, we are united with him in all of this, and this is our salvation. Now, you should notice one thing, and this is going to be something that we uh, address in detail today, and that is that every last person who ever lived is covenantally united with Adam, but not every last person who lived is united with Christ. It is not the case that everyone who lives is united with Christ, but everyone who lives is united with Adam. God has chosen uh, for the raw material of this new race to select out of the race descended from the first Adam the... Um, the population of this second race. And it was his good pleasure not to choose everyone. And this means that the two Adams are not the Adams of the same group of people. You can't take the list of the book of life and have it correspond one-to-one -one with everyone who's ever lived. Everyone who's ever lived is a larger group than those who are in the book of life. Well, if, since this is the case, since it's, it's true that not everyone is saved, not everyone is descended from the second Adam, 
what is the distinguishing mark of those who are saved as opposed to those who are lost? The distinguishing mark is faith. Right? This is what uh, is the visible badge of our union with Christ. We, we acknowledge that he is our federal head, and we do so by faith. Now, this is not the ground of our union with Christ. It's the instrument, and so I want to turn to that distinction uh, and, and make that before we turn to the Scripture itself. We were lost through our union with Adam. Consequently, we are only saved because of our union with Christ in his perfect life, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, and in his ascension. When we speak about the ground of salvation, we are talking about the basis of it, the foundation of it, the rationale for it, the, uh, that which establishes it, that which makes it so. The ground of our salvation is the work of Jesus Christ and God's grace in uniting us to his work. That work of Christ, plus nothing else, is the ground of our salvation. That perfect work and nothing else is the ground of our salvation, not his work, and the little tiny bit that we add. It's nothing else. As we're going to see, when you add a little tiny bit, you're actually subtracting the whole thing. You're, you're act actually annihilating the whole thing because grace and works do not mix, as we will see. The ground of our salvation is the merit of Jesus Christ, the obedience of Jesus Christ, and God's uh, grace to us in uniting us to him and his work. That is the ground of our salvation. The instrument of our salvation, the, the, the central instrument of our salvation, is faith. Now, there are other instruments as well. Uh, Paul tells us in Romans that how will they hear without a preacher? There are uh, uh, parents who pray for their children, someone who witnesses to someone else, someone who preaches the gospel, someone who distributes Christian literature. All these are tools or instruments that God uses. And the central instrument that God uses in, in bringing us to salvation is our faith. But we have to understand rightly what this faith is and where to place it in the, in the doctrine of salvation because if we place our faith in the wrong place, we are overthrowing the gospel. We're turning the gospel upside down. So the way we distinguish these two things is we say the ground of our salvation is Christ's work. The instrument of our salvation is our faith. Now, many Christians understand our part, our, our faith, as being our part. God did his part by sending Christ to die on the cross and to come back from the dead, and that part that God did was 90% of the thing, and, and then we complete it by doing our 10%. Or he, it was 95.5, or 99.1, or 99.9999, whatever, and then we do our little essential thing that makes it work. Now, it's very important that we get this right, because if... Christ died in order to secure the salvation of people who wind up being lost. If Christ died in order to secure the salvation of someone who winds up being lost, then Christ's death was a failure. If, someone, if, if, if Christ died for this person and this person, if Christ died for Jacob and for Esau, and Esau is lost and Jacob is saved, and Christ did the same thing for the two of them, then Christ did not really succeed at anything. In order for Christ to succeed, Jacob had to add something. And because Esau failed to add that essential something, then he has the power, he has veto power over the success of the work of Jesus Christ. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Christ, uh, when he shouts on the cross, his, his cry of triumph, it is 
finished, as I've said before, he doesn't say, it is started, it is begun. And still less is he saying, boy, am I glad this pain is over with. He's, he's not saying, boy, I'm glad I got that, the work of suffering done. Christ knew what he was doing on the cross. He knew that he was securing the salvation of countless millions. And he uh, issues this cry of triumph knowing that the forgiveness of sins has been secured. And he cries, he cries out knowing he's accomplished it. He says, it is finished, not it is begun, not I have done a good thing here. Let's see what they do with it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it is finished, it is accomplished. Now, when we say that Christ uh, secures the salvation of those who are his people, and he doesn't, he doesn't mediate the uh, benefits and power of his death equally to all, because in a, in a world where not everyone goes to heaven, in a, in a universe where there is a heaven and a hell, what this, what this means is that Christ's work is not the ground of salvation. The ground of salvation would then become Christ's work plus our work of believing. In other words, the, the modern evangelical muddle wants to connect Christ's work and our work together like they were railroad cars or something. He does his part and then we add our part to it. Uh, our work is an extension of his work and when we add our work to his work, the thing is done. And some people say, well, no, we don't add our work to his work. We add our faith to his work. And when we, and when we add our faith to his work, the, then the thing is done. Well, you can't change a work into grace by renaming it. You can't say that uh, something that we do, something that we issue, issue for, something that we generate autonomously, uh, somehow isn't a work because we say it's not a work. It doesn't matter what you call it. What matters is what it is. And if we understand faith as something that we generate, something that we autonomously contribute, then we've turned faith into a work. Now, another way of putting this is that we don't build out from Christ's work. We don't have Christ's work here, and then we build out from it. What we do is we uh, take Christ's work, and we build upon it. If we don't build upon it, we are altering the gospel. We are adulterating the gospel. And, and I, I, I hope you forgive me for... for coming at this in many different ways, but it's, it's very important that we grasp uh, this. It's like uh, Lazarus being called forth from the dead. It's, it's muddle-headed. It's wrong to say, how much did Christ do there? It, it, you know, 90%, and then Lazarus did his 10%. Or Christ did 60%, and Lazarus did his 40%. No, how, how much did Christ do in, in raising Lazarus from the dead? Christ did it all. all right? Christ did it all, 100%. Now, did Lazarus do nothing? Did Lazarus say, well, the glory must go to Christ. Sola Deo glory. All the glory to God. In order that the glory may all go to God, I think I will just lie here a little longer. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to come out of the grave. Because if I came out of the grave, then that would detract from Christ's work. No, that exhibits Christ's work. Do you see the difference? Lazarus doesn't do his 1% so that Christ's declaration that he may come forth will then become powerful. Because Christ's declaration is powerful to save and powerful to resurrect, then because he has done his work, then Lazarus does his work, which is to come forth. So it's not 90-10. It's 100%, 100%. It's not end-to-end -end like this. It's one on top of the other. In order for Lazarus to give all the glory to God, he has to build up, not out. All right? In order for us to give glory to God for our salvation, we build up, not out. We don't extend. We don't add our faith on to what Christ did. We don't say Christ's work was the ground of our salvation, and here's an additional ground of salvation, our faith. No. 
We say Christ's work is the ground of our salvation and nothing else. We can't go one inch beyond the foundation that is laid, and that foundation is Christ Jesus. What we do is we build up on that foundation. Another illustration is the one I just gave with Lazarus. We, of course, we walk and talk and live and breathe, and we do all the things that we do. We believe and trust, and we repent of our sins, and we do all these things, just as Lazarus did it all. When he came out of the grave, he was doing it all. He was the one walking. He was the one talking. He was the one breathing. He was the one uh, visiting with his friends afterwards, just as we are the ones who repent, just as we are the ones who believe. We do all the repenting. We do all the believing. But we could do none of it if God had not given it, if God had not given the gift of life. So this is the distinction between the ground of salvation and the instrument of salvation. Now, I've already alluded to this. If you turn to Romans chapter 11, I want you to see Paul's statement that grace and works don't mix. It is not enough for us to say, well, of course, faith is not a work because Scripture describes faith and works as being different things. It is possible for us to invent a human work and then call it faith and have it be something different than what the Bible describes as faith and then say, well, it can't be a work because it's, we, we named it faith. As I said before, renaming something doesn't change the nature of it. You could, you could say, well, uh, what, if someone asks you, why are you saved? And, and you say, well, I, I'm saved because I go to church every Sunday. I'm a faithful church attender. And they say, no, we're not saved by works. And you say, no, I'm, that's not a work, it's faith. All right? you, you don't change or alter or undo the nature of the work that you're trying to do to save yourself by calling it faith, by calling it grace. You can't alter the nature of a thing by naming it something else. What we have to do is understand that grace and works are absolutely antithetical in their essence. They're not antithetical necessarily in their names. It depends on what you mean by the words that you're using. They're antithetical in their essence. The one drives out the other. One iota of true works drives out all grace. One iota of true grace drives out all works. And we see this in Romans 11. I'll begin reading with verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself. Note, note the language there. I have reserved for myself. I kept these men faithful. I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. There's a remnant preserved according to God's election, and it's an election according to grace. Now notice verse 6. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Paul says grace and works, in their essence, don't stand in the same place at the same time. They cannot. You cannot mix them. You cannot blend them. They are the eternal oil and water. You cannot get them to combine. You cannot get them to mix. You can combine the language. Someone could say, that someone's capable physically of saying the sentence, I am saved by grace and works. I'm saved by half God's grace and half of my works. You can say those words, but you have not successfully combined the two. In their essence, it's all of grace or it's all of works. Now, 
I, I'll never forget, some, some years ago, uh, we had an elderly Jehovah's Witness lady in our home. Uh, there was a younger woman with her, too, and we were talking to them about their um, proselyting and their message. And during the course of our discussion, Nancy gave her testimony. She just explained what God had done uh, for her and to her when she was saved and just laid it out. This is what happened to me. I was this way on one day, and the next day God changed me, and God, God did this for me. And I'll never forget what this elderly woman said. She sort of just sat there, sat back, and said, well, it's not that way with us. We have to work for everything we get. We have to work for it all. Now, she wasn't trying to mix grace and works. She knew it was all works. And she, her countenance revealed it. it. She was under a pile. She was under a burden. If she was not good enough, she was not going to uh, attain to her goal. She had to work for everything that she got. At least, although that is rebellious, at least it's, it's clear-headed. At least you know what you're trying to do. Others who, who follow Paul's uh, statements and follow the statements of Scripture, we know that salvation is all of grace. It's grace from the top to the bottom. It's grace from east to west. It's grace from north to south. It's all grace. You can't go through God's grace and find anything of human effort or human ability or human, uh, uh, human insight, human wisdom. It's all Christ. It's all grace. And that also, in addition to being powerful to save, it also is clear-headed. But many Christians today are trying to mix these two things, and they're trying to preserve the language of grace, and they're trying to preserve some little tiny room for human autonomy. And their, their prayer will be, uh, uh, they will pray as though God does it all. In a theological discussion, they say, no, no, uh, God doesn't do it all. Uh, the person has to add his own little decision. And then God doesn't make people become Christians. And then they turn to their prayers, and they get on their knees, and they say, Lord, please make so-and-so a Christian. Well, the, this is simply confusion. It's doctrinal confusion. And as Paul teaches here, the, the one or the other will ultimately drive its adversary out. Works will drive out grace, and grace will drive out works. You cannot have the two living together in the same doctrinal system in peace. They are at war. They are fighting with one another. And those modern evangelicals who want to acknowledge grace and at the same time want to leave room for human autonomy are not acknowledging that their system is at war with itself. There's a civil war in their theology because you can't have both. You can't have them both there and at peace. Paul points to this when he says, and if by grace, it is no longer of works. Do you see that? If it's grace, it's no more works. And if it's works, it's no more grace. Now, this shows us that the faith that we have in Christ, the faith that we uh, that is given to us as an instrument that enables us to believe in Christ and to trust in Christ, this faith is a gift from God. This faith is given to us by God. How do we know that this is true? Well, it's not just because we are arguing from a, a, a premise that says grace and works are antithetical, therefore faith has to be a uh, gift, although that is true, and I think, it's, I think the reasoning is powerful, but we don't have to depend just upon that. We also see in Scripture the plain statements of Scripture about repentance and faith being a gift from God. Now, I want you to think of repentance and faith this way. Repentance is turning away from your sin, and faith is turning toward God. And you cannot turn toward God without simultaneously turning away from your idols. You cannot serve the living God and idols at the same time. So if you're looking to your idols, you're looking away from God. If you're looking away from your idols, you're looking to God. And this process of turning away from idolatry, away from 
uh, your own creations, whether of your hands or of your head. When you turn away from your idols, you're turning to God. So the same motion, if I turn from east to west, I can describe it as turning away from the east, and I can describe it as turning toward the west. I can describe turning uh, from my sins as repentance. The, the action of turning from my sins is repentance. And that same action is, can be described as turning toward God, trust in God and faith in God. Now, both repentance, th this action described from different angles, is described in Scripture over and over again as being a gift from God. Apart from repentance, we cannot believe. And apart from faith or believing, we cannot be saved. And both repentance and faith are gifts from God. Turn to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. The outline says verse 28, but it's actually verse 18. Now what had happened is Peter had gone to the house of Cornelius and had preached the gospel and God had blessed them with the Holy Spirit. And then in the following chapter, Peter has to go back to Jerusalem and give an account of himself. What's with all these Gentiles uh, getting saved and, wh and why did you let that happen? And Peter basically is arguing that it's not, it wasn't up to me. God told me to go and then God blessed my presence there with the giving of his Holy Spirit. And then, after he gives his account to the people back in Jerusalem, I want you to notice how they describe it. In verse 17, Peter says, If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the, to the Gentiles repentance to life. Let me read that last line again. Then God has also granted, given, to the Gentiles repentance to life. Now, in a few moments, we're going to be considering Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and I, I want to jump ahead and refer to that just for a minute so I can make a point here. In Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift from God. Now, I believe that the that is, a, uh, is referring back to its antecedent faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now the reason for bringing it up here is I think you can see contextually in Ephesians 2 that it has to be referring to the faith. But those of you who have ever mentioned this to someone who, who does not think in this way, uh, you may have heard something like this in, in response. Well, uh, in the Greek, the that does not match with the, um, the noun faith in its gender, and I'll, and I'll talk about that in a moment, and so it can't be referring to the same thing. Now, there is an answer for that, and I want to, uh, I'll, I will address that in, in due course, but I, I simply want to point out something else here. While Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 may have some complexities in our discussion of it, this passage has no complexity whatever. If you took this, th this sentence has the same grammatical, is of the same grammatical magnitude or order of Joe hit the ball. Right. Who did the hitting? Joe. What did he hit? The ball. What was the action performed on the ball? Well, it was an action of hitting. Joe hit the ball. Now, let's look at this. Then God has also given, God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Who does the giving? God does the giving. What does he give? Repentance unto life. 
To whom does he give it? He gives it to the Gentiles. And what is the action that he's giving? What is the action of the verb? It's that of bestowing, giving, granting. Uh, what's another synonym? Uh, handing over. Uh, it originates with God, and it winds up with the Gentiles. And what is it that he delivers to them? He delivers to them repentance. Now, think for a moment. Be have you ever known, uh, maybe this was true of you, or maybe this is true of someone you know, have you ever known someone who one day was hard-hearted, didn't care about God, didn't care about Christ, didn't care to hear anything about it, and the next day his heart was soft. The next day he was open. What caused him to change his mind? What caused him to turn from his sin? What brought this repentance about? The doctrine of Scripture is that God brought this repentance about. Who, what brought you about? Right? What brought you, uh, why weren't you here in, 19, let's say, 1850? Why weren't you here then? What's the, what was the holdup? <laughs> well, God was the holdup. He hadn't given you life. And before God gives it to you, you don't have it. After God gives you life, you have life. Before he gives you life, you don't have life. It's the same with new life. When you are born, it's God's gift. When you're born again, it's God's gift. God bestows, bestows it on you. Now, the, the thing that we have to uh, come to grips with here is that the scripture very plainly says, God is the one who gives repentance. God gives repentance, in this case, to the Gentiles. Look at Timothy. You look at 2 Timothy. Chapter 2, I'll start reading at verse 23. It says, But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive to, by him to do his will. Now first, I want you to notice the, the direct language here. If God perhaps will grant them repentance. We behave in a certain way toward non-Christians and we are to behave in this way as a prayer. Now I want to make a fundamental distinction here. There's a difference between treating non-Christians in a certain way as in, in order to win them as a technique, as an evangelistic manipulation, as an evangelistic technique, and treating non-Christians in a certain way as a prayer. Now, what does is, what is, um, Paul say here that we're to do? Looking to God to do something. In other words, we're to treat non-Christians um, by avoiding disputes, stupid disputes, avoiding strife. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel or strive. We must be gentle to everyone, and we must be patiently teaching, able to teach. We must be patient with them. We must correct them in humility. And we do all these things in the presence of God. We don't do these things in the presence of the non-believer as a means of manipulating them into believing. Many Christians talk about uh, this as though this kind of thing were a technique that we use on them. Well, I can assure you that if you are gentle to a non-Christian, if the Holy Spirit's not present, the more gentle you are, the more it will exasperate them. The more you try to avoid strife, the more they will accuse you of stirring up strife. They are, your techniques, the, all these things utilized as evangelistic techniques will not change their heart at all. These are lousy techniques. These, these things will not work as manipulation. 
these things are offered up as prayers. We talk to God about men before we talk to men about God. We are to talk to God about men in many ways. We verbalize our prayers for the non-Christians as we, as we pray to him directly, but we also pray to God in how we treat the non-Christians. Now, of course, they see our behavior, but God, only God can give them rep repentance only God can give them the kind of repentant heart which will see your behavior toward them for what it is, a true fruit of the Spirit, a true work of, of His grace. And so, you behave in this manner toward the non-Christians in the presence of the Lord, and you do this in the presence of the Lord in a particular hope. And the particular hope is that God perhaps, if it's His will, if it's His good pleasure, if it's His sovereign choice, God perhaps may give them something. What might he give them if he so pleases? He might give them, if he pleases, repentance. And this repentance leads to what? Well, to knowledge of the truth. God perhaps may grant them repentance, and if God grants them repentance, then they will come to know the truth, then they will come to their senses, and then, the, the, then they will escape the snare of the devil. All these things come from God's gift of repentance. God gives repentance. Joe hit the ball. God gives repentance. There's nothing complex about this. The thing, that, the, the thing that makes it hard for us is that we want to introduce something into it that saves our pride, that, that will massage our pride a little bit, and the, the scriptures aren't having any. The same thing is true of faith. Remember that turning away from your sins is repentance. Turning to God is belief. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. For to you, you Philippians, it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. For to you, it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. For Jesus' sake, because of his merit, because of his name, because of his power, because of his goodness, God has given us two things. He has given us the privilege of believing in him, and he's given us the privilege of suffering for him. And both of these things are bestowed on us for Jesus' sake. When we believe in him, that is the gift of God. When we suffer for him, that also is the gift of God. And God gives us these things because God is kind to us for Jesus' sake. Now, uh, and I, I don't want to um, belabor the obvious or to uh, beat the horse too much, the, uh, the dead horse too much, but I, 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 want you to, I want you to notice something here. This, the language, the grammar of this is, not, is no big mystery. If you, wanted, if you want to find out what this is saying, just substitute the nouns, okay? Just, just put different nouns in here and find out what this is talking about. Suppose you got a letter and saying, uh, saying that um, a great uncle uh, has, uh, has died, and the attorney uh, who is handling his estate says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of his will, not only to inherit his two Porsches, but also his house in the country. Now, what is that talking about? What you think is that he gave me two cars and a country house. All right, that's how you interpret it. 
and, and rightly so, because that's what it's saying. That's what the structure is here. He is, it's been to you, it has been given, not only to get this, but also to get this other thing. And this is very understandable to us, we think, when the gifts we receive are, are Porsches and country houses. This is something that we grasp. We say, and, and if anybody tried to tinker with that, the, the language of the will or the language of the attorney's letter, if anybody said, no, 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 what this means is you get the country house, but only, you get the cars if you work for, it, for them or if you pay something for them. You'd say, no, 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 no. There's only one verb here, and the verb governs everything that follows, and you would become a very strict and pointed grammarian. <laughs> I encourage you to do the same thing with this. To you, it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Faith in Christ is a gift of God for the sake of Christ. Faith in Christ is a gift of God given for the sake of Jesus Christ. In other words, his death on the cross and his resurrection secured not only the forgiveness of all your sins, but the forgiveness of your unbelief and the bestowal of belief in place of that previous unbelief. God has given this to you. Look at Acts chapter 18. Here it is talking about um, Apollos and his... Uh, his ministry. He began to preach in the synagogue in verse 26 of chapter 18. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So they set him straight on a few doctrinal matters. And when he decided to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. Not, notice, not those who had believed in grace, but those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, it was grace that enabled them to believe. It was grace that equipped them for belief. It was grace that enabled them to become believers in the first place. These people had believed through grace, not believed in Christ with um, the help of grace somewhat, but they were believers because of God's grace. They were believers because of God's goodness. Considering all these things, now turn to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. This passage is one of those great and famous passages, which I think is largely misunderstood, like many famous passages. We, uh, we memorize them, we, um, we're very familiar with them, and so we think we know what they're saying. Let's walk through this very carefully. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now I want to address first the grammatical point that I mentioned earlier. You may hear someone say, well, the gender of faith and the gender of that in Greek are different, and so the that cannot be referring back to the faith. And it is, it is true that the gender of these two things are different. In, in English, very few things have uh, 
gender. Very few inanimate objects or nouns have gender. But in Greek, everything is gender. It's either masculine, feminine, or neuter. And as a general pattern, uh, the two things have to match. If an, if an adjective is describing a noun, it has to match in gender. And if uh, a pronoun is referring back to its antecedent, it, it has to match in, gen in gender. In general, this is true. It is not true, in Greek grammar, it is not true for abstract nouns like faith, hope, charity. It is not true of abstract nouns like beauty and truth. It is true of concrete nouns like like car, chair, table, that sort of thing. But it's not true of abstract nouns, and it's not true here. There's no grammatical reason in the Greek why the that cannot refer back to the faith. There's nothing in the grammar that prohibits that at all. Now, some say, might say, well, might it not refer back to the grace? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Well, the problem with making it refer back to the grace is that makes it redundant. It, ma it makes his, his comment point pointless, because grace is... In, uh, on the face of it, the, the name grace means it's a gift. So he's saying, by grace you've been saved through faith, and this grace is not a work. This grace is grace. This grace is a gift. It makes it redundant. He's just going over the same territory again. We do need to be told that faith is grace. We don't need to be told that grace is grace. Right, do you see that? We do need to be told that faith is a, a gift from God. We do need to be told that faith is grace. We don't need, be, don't need to be told that grace is grace. That's the first thing. The second thing is I want to consider for a moment the importance of verse 10 in this. Let me read through it again the way uh, that I understand uh, Paul to be expressing himself. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that faith is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not of works, lest anyone should boast. In other words, we can start taking pride in our own faith. Yeah, uh, you know, I know I didn't deserve my salvation, and God offered it to me, Jacob, just as much as he offered it to Esau over here, and he offered the same thing to the two of us, and I'm just as worthless as Esau is, but I had the good sense to see that I was worthless. I had the good sense to see that God was offering me salvation. Esau over here, boy, he didn't see that. Esau over here, he was stiff-necked. He stayed stiff-necked. I didn't stay stiff-necked. I had faith. I trusted him. Now, do you see, when someone begins boasting in their own superior wisdom or their own superior docility or their own superior submissiveness to the word of Christ, they are taking pride in something. And Paul excludes the possibility of pride altogether. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, how do we understand that this is what the passage must be talking about? We see it in verse 10. For we are his workmanship. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I want to come back to the example of Lazarus. Lazarus was not resurrected by his good works. He was resurrected to good works, but he wasn't resurrected by good works. Lazarus didn't contribute anything to his resurrection. Now, after he was resurrected, after he was raised from the dead, he did it all. But he wouldn't have done any if God had not worked in him prior. If God had not worked in him at the beginning, none of this would have happened. Now, we are his workmanship. Now, look at the language here. Created. When does a creation occur? It occurs at the beginning. It occurs at the start. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. 
And we are created in Christ Jesus in order to do good works. We are not saved by good works. We are saved to good works. Now, what are the first good works that we do? The first good works that we do are repentance and belief. The first good works that we do are repentance and belief. Now, if repentance and good work, if repentance and belief are works that we do prior to our creation in Christ Jesus, then we have something in which to boast. But if we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, and the first good works that we do are repentance and belief, we have nothing of which to boast. It's all of God from beginning to end. Salvation is all of grace from top to bottom. So God gives us a new creation. God creates us in Christ Jesus toward good works. And the first good work that we do is repentance and belief. Now, the Apostle Paul had to deal with the Galatian Judaizing heresy, and you, you may recall how he dealt with it. You recall what that heresy was. Well, Christ gets us started. We are justified by faith. But now you've got to go on and obey the whole law of Moses. You've got to submit to circumcision and do this and that and the other thing. And how does Paul attack that? He says, are you so foolish, having begun with the Spirit, are you now going to finish in the flesh? Having begun with the Spirit, are you now going to finish by human effort? You can't start the race by the grace of God and then finish it by human effort. He says, you're mixing two things that ought not to be mixed. It begins with grace, it continues with grace, it finishes with grace. You start the way, you finish the way you start. Now, modern evangelicals are not Judaizers. In fact, they're doing precisely the reverse, I think. Paul would say to them, not, are you so foolish, having begun with the Spirit, are you now going to finish by human effort? He said, are you, are you so foolish, having begun in the flesh, are you now going to finish by the Spirit? Because that's what we want to do. We want our creation, we want the starting point, we want when the starter's gun goes off at the beginning of our Christian life, we want to make that initial lurch, that initial uh, decision, that initial thing that gets us going. And then when we stand up and we're off and running down the race, then God says, good start, you're five minutes into the race, I'm going to create you in Christ Jesus now for good works. That, is, that flies in the face of everything that the Apostle Paul teaches, that flies in the face of what the Bible reveals about our salvation. We are created in Christ Jesus from the very start for good works. And the first good works are repentance and belief. Turn to Philippians again. Philippians chapter 2. And I think that we can see the doctrine set forth plainly here. And again, this is plain and simple. Philippians 2, 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is one of those verses, one of those great out-of-context posters could be made. As Scripture says, dot, 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 work out your own salvation, dot, 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 Philippians 2, 12. Work out your own salvation. There it is. Work it out. But continue on, verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Anybody who works out for their salvation, anybody who works out anything that God has not worked in is going to hell. You cannot work out for your salvation something that God has not, prior to that time, worked into you. If you're working out repentance and belief and God didn't work it in, God didn't give it, you're working out something that will not save you. If you are working out repentance and belief and good works and faith and trust and charity, and you're working out only what God has worked in, 
then you are working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And the salvation that you work out will be true salvation. It will be genuine salvation. It will be the real thing. We only must work out what God works in and nothing else. And there's no way that we can deny that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works and then accept certain things. We cannot say, well, repentance and faith are autonomous. Our old sinful heart, our old rebellious heart, does the repenting and believing, and then after that we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works. I'll never get tired of saying this. If you could repent and believe with your old heart, you don't need a new one. If you could repent and believe with your old heart, you don't need a new one. You can't repent and believe. You're, you're as dead as Lazarus was, and you can't do anything unless God quickens you, unless God brings you to life. And if God brings you to life, then you can walk around. Then you can repent. Then you can believe. Turn to John chapter 6, and we'll finish with that. John chapter 6 is a wonderful chapter for the subduing of human pride. And all gospels of self-effort all gospels of works and all gospels of mixtures of grace and works, which, have, as we have seen, are impossible. In verse 26, Jesus answered them, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were, and, and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. Now notice he tells them to labor. The, the Bible doesn't say that we're not to labor. The Bible doesn't say that we're not to work. The Bible doesn't say that we're not to work for eternal life. The Bible doesn't say that we're not to work for salvation. We're to work for all of these things. But we must understand upon what that work rests. If it rests upon anything other than what Jesus did, we are trying to save ourselves and we're lost. But if it rests upon what Jesus did and we're working out what he worked in, it's different. Which the Son of Man gives you which the Son of Man gives you, because God the Father has set his seal upon him. Seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do? Good little church folks, we want to post something on the fridge. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? How long does my quiet time have to be? How many times a week do I have to have a quiet time? How many times do I have to go to church? How much must I witness? What do I have to do to be a good little Christian? What do I have to do to earn my way into your presence? What must we do to get eternal life? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. That was Douglas Wilson's talk, Justification by Faith Alone, from our audio collection, The Gospel of Our Lord Jesus Christ. For more from this series, head to canonpress.com.